2: Hey guys, welcome to the fifth episode of The Long War. This is When Diplomacy Fails, a member of the Agora Podcast Network. My name is Zach Twomley and you're very, very welcome. It's great to have you here. If you weren't aware, When Diplomacy Fails is my baby. It's Zach Twomley's baby and When Diplomacy Fails looks at wars throughout history and basically gives you the download, the 101, if people even still say that, on what the story was with that war. At the moment, we're doing a special of sorts called The Long War, which waged from the early 1680s to the late 1690s. If that sounds like your cup of tea, then please do stick around. But I'd encourage you also to check out the website, wdfpodcast.com, and also check us out on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails, and you'll find some really awesome ways to support this podcast and to help us achieve our goals in the future. Also encourage you to follow me on Twitter, at wdfpodcast.com, And, of course, find the Facebook page where you can keep up to date with everything going on in the wonderful, wacky world of When Diplomacy Fails. Until then, though, guys, thanks very much for listening. And, hey, maybe tell someone about this podcast. If you're enjoying it, if you're enjoying the current series, maybe you're here now because someone told you about it. That's pretty cool. That's basically bringing BeFit full circle. So, hey, you're very welcome aboard. To everyone else, yes I will, just get on with it. Let's jump right into this guys, episode 5 of The Long War. and welcome history friends, patrons all, to the fifth episode of The Last War. The Last War? No. It's The Long War. Good job. First, se- first sentence of the episode I and mean, we messed up already. It's fine, I'm going to leave that in just for the crack. Okay, so last time we entered into an exciting new theatre of the war. It was the main event, so to speak. We began our coverage of the epic rivalry between the Habsburg and Ottoman, the Christian and the Muslim, divinely ordained and by right of conquest... They claimed their rights to, well, the inheritance of Rome, in short. In this episode, we continue that narrative then, with the aim to build up a complete picture that isn't too complex and hopefully quite digestible to bring us up to the gates of Vienna in 1683, which kind of is, of course, what you're all here for, but we have to set the background first, we can't just jump right into it. Today we're going to give some detail on the More technical aspects of the two actors. How did both sides call in vassals? What kinds of weapons did they depend upon? And how was their rivalry impacted by their other neighbors? All of these are critical questions to answer as we build a better idea of what made these empires not only powerful and influential in their own right, but also distinctively different from one another, as their rivalry came to define the East-West Divide. I hope you'll enjoy it then, as we've got a good bit of detail to cover today. I will now take you to a relatively familiar figure if you've listened to our episodes on the Franco-Dutch War. Raimondo Monte and his command of the League Army were destined to meet the Turks in battle after a long peace in 1664. Outnumbered, outgunned and desperately short on allies, it was imperative that Monte still somehow won the battle which was to come, lest Vienna would again be vulnerable to the Ottoman menace. Let's take you back to that year then, 1664, 20 whole years before the more famous last siege of Vienna took place, and see how it all went down. Hath been the happy fortune of the Turk to be accounted barbarous and ignorant. For upon this persuasion, Christian princes have laid themselves open and unguarded to their greatest danger, while this enemy hath made himself master of the whole provinces and largely shared in the rich and present possessions of Europe. Paul Reichout, writing in his 1687 work, *The History of the Turkish Empire from the Year 1623 to the Year 1687*. that his enemy was nearby, he knew that his enemy was far larger and better equipped than he was, and he knew that his enemy had grand ambitions to complete the campaign with a great and glorious victory. He knew above all that his force was the only thing standing in the way of such an outcome. Raimondo Montecucoli knew a great deal, but what he did not know was precisely when and where the Ottoman army, of as many as 100,000 men led by the Grand Vizier himself, was about to strike. Positioned as they were in the western reaches of Habsburg-Royal-Hungary, tantalisingly close, or worryingly close in Montecuccoli's case, to the border with the Austrian hinterlands, the already grizzled imperial general knew that the odds were against him. The Ottomans had seen their ambitions frustrated the year before when a siege had preoccupied them until too late in the campaigning season to make a play for Vienna. Cutting their losses and with some intense Hungarian opposition, The decision had been made to ignore the Danube, which bisected Hungary and led, if followed to the west, directly to Vienna. The Hungarian plains can be difficult to picture in your head. But to simplify matters, patrons can see a map of the area within the script, and on the When Diplomacy Fails Facebook page, that same map image will be uploaded for you guys to make more sense of the region. If we were to bring back an old concept of mine and, oh lord help us mind map the region, What you'd be left with is essentially a square of territory, boxed in by three major rivers. The first was the Danube, which flowed across the top of the square and then down on the right side of it. On the bottom of the square flowed the river Drava, which served as a great natural defensive line against Ottoman attacks from the south, while along the left side of the square flowed the river Rab. These three rivers shaped and moulded the region. And within the square was some seriously difficult marshy terrain, as the place served as floodplains for the three rivers during the wetter seasons. If we imagine the Ottomans invading from the south, walking through the outside of the square's right side, which was the Danube, don't forget, before moving along the Danube's right bank towards Vienna... And that was essentially the Ottoman plan for 1663. The plan was frustrated by the tenacious defence of the fortress of Neuhausel, modern-day Novozamki, which wasted a load of the Ottomans' time, and meant that it was too late in the campaigning season of 1663 to actually tackle Vienna. Worse than this, some vengeful Habsburg irregulars had caused absolute havoc behind Turkish lines, capturing a load of settlements and burning several bridges, south along the river Drava. At this then the Grand Vizier was forced to move back to Belgrade for the winter down the south and plan the next phase of his campaign for 1664 very very carefully. To continue with our mind map square of the Hungarian plains, Think of the city of Belgrade as just outside of the square in the bottom right corner. This was where the Grand Vizier, Fazil Ahmed Pasha, was based and for 1664 he determined, rather than follow the Danube northwards as he had the previous year, it would be better to cross the River Drava into the marshy plain of Hungary. In other words, Pasha crossed from the bottom line of our square, and he now proceeded to advance along the bottom of the square, following the River Drava. On his way, he captured a series of old Habsburg forts in his march westwards, compromising the security of the Habsburgs there and reinforcing the Ottoman position in Hungary. He then sent scouts to the northwest, so to the left side of our square if you're still with us, bear with me guys, because the River Rab was blocking his way out of the Hungarian plain. If he could cross the River Rab, he would be out of the square and thus free to march due northwest, skirting around all the marshes and tough fortresses. In short, if the Grand Vizier could cross the River Rab, he would be able to march directly at the soft underbelly with Vienna only 100 miles away. His scouts were meant to find an easy place to cross the Rab River, and to find Monte Cuculli's army. They found Montecuculi before he seemed to retreat back across the River Rab, but they also found a shallow crossing point near the Cistercian Abbey of St. Gathard. The Tartar scouts even trotted their ponies across to the other side and remarked on the strikingly undefended nature of the crossing point as a whole. It was here then that the Grand Vizier, Pasha, believed that the weak point of the Habsburgs lay. Wasting no time he marched his army rapidly across the small settlement of Mogersdorf, punctuated by the aforementioned Abbey of St. Gotthard, Reaching the village on the 30th of July 1664, Pasha was somewhat taken aback by what he saw. The scouts hadn't quite been accurate in their reporting. The river was relatively shallow at this point, for now at least, but across the river, the bank was shadowed by a large amount of hilly wooded ground, which would mean that once the Ottomans crossed the River Rab, they would be boxed in against that same river, with no option as of yet to head directly northwest, until the hills tapered off and the land kind of opened out into a bit of a clearing. Gambling that the enemy was not in the region though, The Pasha's troops started to cross on the 31st of July, with some pontoon bridges set up for the artillery and baggage, and several elite Janissary contingents fording their way across with the Tartars and other auxiliaries. To defend their position the troops dug trenches on the other side of the river and they awaited the rest of the baggage and artillery before advancing any further. The Pasha was determined to keep his army together, but because the 31st was Friday, a holy day, he ceased operations altogether by the early afternoon in the war council that followed, it was decided that the remainder of the army would march across with their supplies on the morning of Saturday the 1st of August 1664. So it was that on the night of the 31st of July, some Ottoman units slept in their trenches on one side of the river, while other units remained on the other side with the Grand Vizier. All being well, they would continue the crossing invisible to the enemy early the next morning. Yet, The next day brought a very different scene for the Grand Vizier. First of all, somewhat appropriate considering it was a holy day, the heavens opened late in the night of the 31st, creating a sudden abundance of water which drenched the soldiery and their supplies. Worse than this though, it overflowed the river, pouring into their trenches and turning the previously scenic river crossing into a far more dangerous affair. The once shallow ford was now a raging torrent fed by the mountainous streams further upriver and the smaller sources in the mountains. Pasha awoke in the morning of the 1st of August to find his soldiers cursing and his plans quite literally under water. It would take a great deal more time and effort now to bring the rest of his army across. As the engineers worked a double time to craft a bridge which would hold all aspects of the force, Pasha may have got the feeling that he was being watched. The Grand Vizier and his forces, it would emerge... We're not the only ones who had been soaked. On the other side of the River Rab, hungrily watching the encamped Ottomans in their overflowed trenches, Raimondo, Montecucoli and his multinational force hid in the woods. Seeing that perhaps the strongest element of the Ottoman army was across the river and now isolated, Montecucoli planned to take his own force of barely 40,000 men and launch a surprise attack when the moment was right. Egged on by the French cavaliers, the Brandenburg, Saxon, Bavarian and Austrian elements in the army, Montecucoli attacked Pasha's isolated Janissaries in the afternoon of the 1st of August 1664. The Battle of Saint-Gothard had begun. For six hours, the Ottomans charged up the wooded hill at Montecucoli, only to be driven back by the vicious combination of musket and field artillery volleys. Since all of Montecucli's force had not yet evacuated the woods, it wasn't clear either to the vizier or his forces how many of the enemy were in place. Judging by the sheer volume of fire Montecucli was able to bring to bear though, the enemy imagined that there was far more men on the field than there actually was. Although some of his German allies did get a bit overzealous and charge recklessly at the Ottoman lines only to be driven back, the Turks were comparatively outnumbered thanks to the fact that most of their army hadn't been given a chance to cross the Rab River. Evelia Celebi, our witness for Leopold's hideous looks from the last episode, was amongst the Ottoman army and he recalled the initially unsuccessful charge. He wrote, The infidels attacked first, shouting, Jesus, Jesus! as the Muslim army played their great kettle drums, their little kettle drums and their trumpets. The soldiers of the One God launched their assault on the infidels, shouting their battle cries falling upon them as the wolf attacks a flock of sheep. When the attack was resumed after the smaller, isolated Ottoman contingent had exhausted themselves, Chilebi attempted to excuse the defeat by noting... For the love of their false religion, they attacked in seven directions with their artillery and their muskets, so that half of the janissaries of the Grand Viziers found martyrdom in the first hours of the battle. The remaining Muslim soldiers, caught between the diabolical fire of the cannon and the muskets, retired from the battlefield. Capturing the absolute slaughter which followed once the Turks finally broke after such a long trial, our man of the hour, Andrew Wheatcroft, wrote... Carried by Montecuclis cuirassiers, whose broadswords smashed down under the heads and exposed soldiers of their demoralised enemies, the broken Turkish regiments crowned back into the now deep waters of the River Rab. Only the Tartars were able to swim their horses across the river, and they then returned time and again with their spare mounts to rescue as many of the trapped Janissaries as possible. Following the battle, the Turks had lost some of their best infantry units, possessing in the aftermath only their unruly tartars and auxiliaries. Their dead elite were now plugging up the River Rab, meaning that the Grand Vizier, contrary to his expectations,
0: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care.
2: had just squandered his master's army and thrown away the best opportunity he had had to attack beyond Hungary into the Habsburg heartland. With this victory in tow, the Hungarians became restless. The vassal Prince of Transylvania urged Leopold to move into Hungary and exploit the victory, yet Leopold remained overtly cautious. Much like the Turks refused to believe that this was it when they had defeated the main Hungarian army at the Battle of Mohac in 1526, so too did Leopold hesitate and eventually make peace, even after the major military arm of the Ottomans had been destroyed. It seems like a foolish waste of a victory, but it's worth remembering a few points. The first of them being that Montecugli's victory signalled his tactical superiority, not his numerical superiority or his superiority in resources. The imperial commander did not, in other words, have enough forces or supplies for a full-blown campaign. Second, and in a theme which was dominant in the era and will become very important to us later on, Leopold didn't want to begin a grand Ottoman war at the point when he believed Louis XIV was plotting his own aggressive and glorious campaign. To present his forces from being distracted in the east, Leopold would make a hasty peace in the Treaty of Vesvar, not far from where the Battle of Saint-Gothard was fought. It promised peace for a 20-year period, while it also promised to hand back virtually all of the lands that the Habsburgs and the Allies had won in the war. This was an affront to those native auxiliaries who had believed that, by so acting against the Ottomans, they would be ensuring their own freedom. Instead, it appeared as though the lazy and scheming Leopold believed there would be less effort in simply making peace and handing it all back. Though Leopold could not know it just yet, the ripples of this action and the dissatisfaction it created amongst his Allies would burn and fester for the next two decades, erupting after some additional Habsburg prodding in the 1670s. This time the Hungarians would ask and receive not for help from their Holy Roman masters, but from the Ottomans, with devastating consequences for all involved. Like the two rivals were wont to do, it was time for an official period of truce once more. After Suleiman's death in 1566, a truce had been followed which endured right up to the point of the so-called Long War. Well, another Long War other than this one that we're covering right now, and that began in 1593 and ended in 1607. The Habsburgs enjoyed several successes in that war, and the Ottoman aura of invincibility was unquestionably destroyed, but the formidable military prowess of the Turk remained a source of much fear and derision in the West. Although after 1607 the Habsburgs would no longer pay annual tribute for peace, for the honour of peace with the Ottomans, they soon faced a more pressing challenge at home, as the Thirty Years' War was soon to erupt. At the same time, the Ottomans were forced to turn their attentions due east as well, as Safafid Persia, under its most resplendent and powerful Shah, Abbas I, had launched a series of devastating raids and invasions which took the Ottomans utterly off guard. The Ottoman-Safafid War, which endured from 1603 to 1619, must be considered a crushing Ottoman defeat, and in the years that followed, the Turks were repeatedly seeking to revenge themselves on their troublesome eastern neighbour, even as great symbolic bastions like Baghdad fell to the Safafids, and Persian suzerainty over the entirety of the Caucasus was confirmed. While the Habsburgs focused on the Holy Roman Empire and the Ottomans on their Oriental neighbours, a kind of watershed moment passed by without anyone apparently noticing. As history enthusiasts, we know that while the Thirty Years' War was wholly devastating, it did teach the Habsburgs invaluable lessons about the nature of warfare, which they were able to apply to their later wars with the Ottomans. In addition, it formed the basis for military men's careers and experience. Men like Raimondo Montecuculi, who was critical to the Habsburg success in 1664. By contrast to the Habsburg and European learning of new styles of warfare and the importance of fortresses to the war effort, the Ottomans rarely, if ever, sought to change up their tactics. This problem had been visible even in the less spectacular war between the two powers at the turn of the 17th century. While on paper the Ottomans regained much of what they had lost and ensured the peace treaty didn't really confer victory on the Habsburgs, which the Habsburgs may have felt that they deserved, it was clear from the fighting over the last decade and a half in that war that the Habsburgs hadn't rested on their laurels. When Suleiman had conquered his way up to the gates of Vienna in the early 1530s, it seemed that only fatefully bad weather had saved the day. There was no question of a strategic or planned defensive line, no apparent strategy to deal with the Turk, and no bank of resources in place to provide for the necessary campaign. Once the 1593 war broke out though, everything was different. It can help to think back to our mind map where we described that square of marshy ground which was framed by the three major rivers in the region and how that square of marshy ground formed a last bastion of defence for Vienna. When the Grand Vizier marched into this region in 1664, he would surely have felt impressed by the rate at which the entire region had been fortified and modernised to provide a defensive line. He even elected to avoid travelling west along the right bank of the Danube, because he had been told that a collection of interconnected fortresses owned by the Habsburgs effectively blocked the way. In the 1590s, this system was only being constructed, but even then it provided a frustrating foil to the Ottoman advance. Gone was the squishy underbelly of the Habsburg hereditary lands. Here instead was a bag of reinforced nuts that would have to be cracked before a proper advance could be made. After the disappointing results of the 1593-1607 to war and the abject failure of the campaign in 1664, the Ottomans really should have gone back to the drawing board and thought how do we overcome such impressive defences? Instead, though, it seemed to be business as usual in Constantinople. Understanding that fortresses had an impact, the Habsburgs continued to invest in them continually over the two decades following 1664. If you remember back to our Franco-Dutch War episodes, and if you happen to be a patron and listen to our Louis Arms and Armies mini-series on the Extra Feed, then you'll know that by the 1660s and 70s, a kind of military revolution was underway in the west of Europe, which had been developing for some time. This was the supremacy of the fortress, a largely forgotten fact of the era, but one that becomes apparent when we consider how relatively few decisive field campaign battles there were during the period. For the Turks, this meant that when they sought to invade either in the 1590s or the 1660s, They wouldn't be greeted with a devastating Battle of Mohatch, as had been seen in the 1520s. Instead, the Habsburgs took to their modernised, well-equipped and well-defended fortresses rather than the battlefield, with the obvious exception being when battles actually did take place, like at St. Gotthard. The military revolution was apparently lost on the Ottomans. While European commanders like Wallenstein and Count Tilly learned from the war with the Turks at the beginning of the 1600s, and applied these lessons to the Thirty Years' War, and in turn, applied these lessons to the campaigns of the 1660s, the Ottomans did not do much either to reinforce or modernize their own border areas, or to significantly upgrade their own armed forces. For Constantinople, this would prove a costly misstep. Not only had the wars with the Habsburgs proved, by the early 1600s, that fortresses were entering into a golden age, they also proved that on a given day, under the right conditions, the Western European forces could be just as militarily effective and successful as their once invincible Ottoman counterpart. The reasons for these were legion, as technology, tactics, military theory and improvements in command structure were felt, but one is struck by the image of the Ottomans resting on their laurels while the Habsburgs moved with the times. The image is perhaps not entirely fair. The Ottomans did remain an absolute beast after all and they were incomprehensibly and deliberately terrifying when confronted in large numbers. Yet at the same time the Ottoman armed forces with their legendary Janissary infantry or Sipaz cavalry had undeniably been relegated from the military status of something of an unbeatable god to just another threat which the Habsburgs had to face. The threat was very real and nobody would seek to understate it, but having beaten them once before, Vienna could at least take solace in the fact that a continual improvement in the same methods which had worked before would suffice to guarantee success in the future, while the Ottomans continued to believe in their old methods and refused to accept that the increasingly static battlefields of the West could have anything substantial to teach them. It was a belief which in the long run would cost them dearly. As the Habsburgs modernised and endured successive European wars, another strength of their military system became apparent, the command structure. A forgotten weakness of the Ottoman equivalent was how their armed forces, be it infantry, cavalry or artillery, were commanded and arrayed in battle formation. Habsburg commanders were often more well-rounded and better equipped in terms of tactical experience to deal with any eventualities on the battlefield. Below the Hasburg commander was a literal chain of command, with senior and junior officers, sergeants, corporals, lance corporals and the common foot soldier. This chain ensured that organisation in the heat of battle was top notch, while it also meant that new soldiers could be trained quickly and slotted relatively painlessly into this command structure. They simply had to adhere to the drill book and command structure, another lesson we learned from Louis Arms and Armies, where the drill achieved a pivotal level of importance the result being that Habsburg and European armies were ordered to and fro in a battle, and the common soldier could be depended upon to follow his orders to the letter, well, as far as was possible, with the result that he became a kind of robot plugged into the shouts and demands of his superior officer. The Ottoman soldier, by contrast, marched and operated through his own personal skill, and he lived or died by his ability to meet and battle with the enemy, rather than his ability to follow orders. This apparently trivial and largely forgotten difference in the east-west styles of warfare came to a head when large bodies of men had to be commanded on the open field. Whereas the western commander knew that his junior officers would do much of the heavy lifting on the ground, as he kept the grand strategy in mind, Ottoman commanders, normally the Grand Vizier, had to keep a handle on everything and appreciated full well that if their individual units, such as the Janissaries for example, decided that they particularly disliked a commander or disagreed with an order, they would not follow it. Where the likes of Montecucoli had elaborate command signals, flags and battlefield communications designed over a series of campaigns to coordinate the troops and inspire pride in the individual units, Ottoman armies had stirring music, military bands and symbols to spur the soldiery on, but a central art of generalship was lacking the soldiery would win the day for the Ottomans rather than the famed military theorists like Vauban, Maurice of Nassau, Wallenstein or Gustavus Adolphus. In a further plug for the extra feed, when Jan Sobieski confronts the Ottomans with a superior force as well as superior tactics, the result in the Ottoman command was a deterioration and eventually a rout from the top down. In a sense, at the risk of generalising too much, The Janissaries were taught and made aware of their importance to the Ottoman war effort. They knew the Sultan's glory or shame depended on their skill and expertise. So skilled and infamous were the Janissaries of the Ottoman Empire that they were treated almost like royalty, with men assigned to carry their equipment, comfortable tents to sleep in, and a guaranteed pension after their service. The Janissaries had come a long way from the Christian boy slave soldiers from the Balkans, and the increase of their fame and reported prowess, seemed to come right about the same time that the rules for Janissaries were relaxed, leading to a gradual decline in their overall professionalism and loyalty to the state. This situation is mirrored almost too conveniently to how the Praetorian Guard came to evolve in Rome over the centuries, to the point that they basically went into business for themselves at the worst possible time. The Janissaries hadn't gone that far, well not yet anyway, but they certainly appreciated their own importance to the Ottoman War effort, and would seek to take advantage of this role where they could stand to gain. If we are to summarise then, it is plain from the changing nature of the Habsburg-Hungarian border that much had changed since the Kingdom of Hungary had been subsumed between the two great rivals. In that span of 150 years, beginning with the Battle of Mohacs in 1526, The Habsburgs had continuously upgraded and updated their military style, their command structure and their fortress systems. Every Western European state went through the same process, largely because Europeans, unlike the Ottomans, constantly had to develop newer and better ways to kill or outflank each other, which led to increased innovation and a kind of organic development cycle. By contrast, the Ottomans faced fewer enemies on their larger borders and when wars were fought with them, The Ottomans were mostly able to win, not as consistently or convincingly as before perhaps, but still to a great enough extent that no Turkish military official believed in the need for any kind of change. Any change had to come from the Sultan himself, or at least from his Grand Vizier. There were no independent generalissimos marching around as Europe tended to see. With less bodies commanding large armies, there were less opportunities to learn and then impart wisdom and experience. In my opinion then, rather than asking why the Ottomans declined, we should instead marvel at how long their military tactics and organisational style managed to hold the rest of Europe at bay, and terrify large portions of it into submission. As we'll see next time, whether a decay has set in or not, there was nothing quite like the sight of the Ottoman Empire on the march, with a vengeful Sultan at the head of the entire operation. I hope you'll join me then in the next episode, history friends. My name is Zach and you've been listening to When Diplomacy Fails. Thanks and I'll be seeing you all soon.